So we're just like kids running around in adult clothing, all of us, you know, from, from, you know, political figures on down to your neighbor, all of us. And I, I think we are amazingly at a point in time where we are discovering, oh, okay, initiation requires my moving into the dark cave, right? Yeah. I go, I've got to go, only I can do it. I can know other people are doing it. I can be a part of communities that are doing it. But in the end, it's an inside job I have to do. And there is this elusive quality I have been you know, observing for many years that I, I can't really understand, which is readiness. Right. So you reference the people listening who are maybe they've considered antidepressants, maybe they're on them, you know, maybe they know somebody who is, maybe they know they would never touch that. But then a moment comes where they're like, Oh, should I do it? I don't know. Right. So so the readiness is the best I've come to in terms of kind of capturing it, is that it's a moment where moving towards change, radical change, actually feels like a relief. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Welcome, better friends, colleagues, and kittens to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I had a soul-rejuvenating conversation with Dr. Kelly Brogan. Dr. Brogan is a board-certified psychiatrist and is well-known for her New York Times bestsellers, A Mind of Your Own and Own Your Life. These are renegade works, works of of art, in my opinion, that really detail for someone who is a truth seeker and who is open to the possibility that they are able to hold difficult emotions and move through them and process them without the use of medication. So before I get into what Dr. Brogan and I talked about, I just wanted to give you a little squeak of a reminder that every week I have my extra geeky, extra magic show notes for you. This is my prep work. It is my virtual prescription pad that includes all of the studies that I have accrued or that were mentioned on the podcast, personal best practices, thoughts, and again, the prep notes that I use to prepare for these interviews that are available for free to you. All you have to do is go to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. That's S-H-O-W-N-O-T-E-S. And you just have to give me your name and your email so I know where to send it. And I will give you all of the extra geek, extra magic, because as you know, geeky magic carpet rides are my thing. And I try to go on one every time I get to connect with someone like Dr. Brogan. So what I wanted to speak to Kelly about was centering our conversation around difficult emotions. And this may be a triggering conversation for some of you uh, because we talked about depression and the use of antidepressants. And before we get into it and before you get to the episode, I just want to gently with a loving and firm hand, let you know that this is a conversation that I would love you to just keep your your mind and your heart open to. It's not shaming anybody's choices. We are just not, and we're also not trying to make you uncomfortable about the choices that maybe you or a family member has made around medication. I'm just inviting you to perhaps understand that there is a different reality that is available to you. And should you choose to or not is completely up to you. We love you anyway, as we, uh, there's, this is a judgment-free, shame-free podcast. So I just wanted to say that upfront because we are going to be talking about something called the monoamine hypothesis, which is the theory that there is a chemical imbalance in our brain. And Kelly breaks this down so eloquently that it is just that. It is a theory that has really failed to been to have been proven in all of the available literature that's out there. The market 
marketing machine behind antidepressant use and some of the real short-term and long-term effects that are associated with antidepressants. And I wanted to bring this podcast to light because I have myself personally have been on an antidepressant. I found that it numbed me out. I didn't like it. And I also know some exquisite human beings who I love and I care about who are on antidepressants. And I often find myself just wanting to just go right to the being the profitizing jerk that you can, that you often see where people are like, just exercise, just meditate, just do this, just do that. And uh, of course I don't do that, but in my head, it's literally a battle to keep my mouth from moving. So I wanted to really go to the expert here. So we talked about some of the things that can actually show up as depression. And in fact, depression is always an appropriate response to an internal or external, your internal or external environment. It's just up to you whether or not you want to opt out of that experience with a medication or opt into it and figure out what's going on. So we talk about short-term effects, long-term effects. We talk about some pretty... Um, pretty disturbing things, akathisia-induced impulsivity, that uh, 30% of the time, 30 to 40% of the time, that antidepressants just stop working, that 88% of the time, it is just a placebo effect, which was shocking to me. I had not, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. And then we talked about, we got into a deeper dive into solutions. So for anybody that has ever been depressed or have ever, has ever had to deal with emotions like guilt and shame and sadness and grief and feeling hopeless, we talk about Dr. Kelly's online 30-day program and what that entails. And then we got into this beautiful conversation around the inner critic and how we can just learn to sit in the sadness. And she opens up and tells me something that I don't think I've heard her speak about anywhere in terms of her you know, recently wanting to leave her marriage because she was in her victimhood. She was in her inner child and not wanting to feel those feelings. So I hope that you find our conversation insightful at the very least informative and whether or not you want to change your behavior. Like I said, I love you anyway. I love my listeners. And the reason why I do podcasts like this that potentially challenge the status quo is because I truly believe with all of my heart that we are never given anything that we are not able to deal with. It's just that you may not have the frameworks or the tactics or the skill set to do it. And we need it to be, you know, we need to heal through community and through people that have just done it uh, in a different way that maybe is the norm. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kelly Brogan. All right, Dr. Kelly Brogan, welcome to the podcast. It's such a thrill to have you here today. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. I wanted to center our conversation today around sitting with and moving through difficult emotions. Mm. And I thought with that, to parse that with a conversation or a discussion around depression, which is very prevalent in modern society. And of course, the conventional antidote to that with uh, that being antidepressants. Yes. And the reason why I wanted to do this with you is I just have one too many friends or yeah. family members who are on antidepressants who unequivocally unequivocally say that this has been the game changer for them, you know, without the, without the intervention that uh, they wouldn't be able to function. It's given them, it's been, they've been able to function as a, as a member of society. And I am often, when I hear that in my head, like Estima, zip the lip, like don't talk about the PubMed literature. Don't talk about exercise. Don't talk about meditate. Like just zip. They haven't asked you, shut it. So I wanted to talk to you because you are, you know, a psychiatrist, you are an expert in this realm. And I thought it might be a good place to start with the hypothesis around depression, the monoamine hypothesis around this chemical or this, it's really a theory around yeah. the chemical imbalances in the brain. Can you explain what that is and how it is so pervasive and how we think about mental illness? Yeah. So the, the sordid history of psychiatry's clamoring to be accepted and acknowledged as a valid medical discipline is probably more elaborate um, than we can get into now. But suffice it to say that, you know, in around the 1950s, there were a number of factors that uh, sort of came together to give birth to this theory. One of them was observations around the way that patients behaved after they were treated for tuberculosis with 
medications that impacted, at least theoretically, what's called the monoamine um, pathway in the brain. And there was an observation that there was like transient euphoria in these individuals. And that plus a theoretical paper by a gentleman named Sheldkraut, um, plus minus some potential um, <laughs> CIA co-optive research on psychedelics, uh, gave birth to this opportunity for the pharmaceutical industry to leverage a really poorly baked uh, biological concept and physiological mechanism around uh, what might be driving different states of behavior, mood, and cognition, but in this case, specifically depression. And you know, uh, what follows is the multi-billion dollar industry of uh, antidepressant drugs. And what happens is that in many cases, uh, pharmaceutical science reverse engineers a theory, right? So it would be like, as my colleague David Healy says, when he uses the metaphor around alcohol as um, you know, a, another representation of a consciousness altering substance, right? So what, if we were to do a trial of you know, two shots of vodka for social anxiety and, and we would have the participants take either that or water, uh, you know, you could imagine that in an eight-week trial, there would be an effect so that the participants might come out of that trial and say, you know, it really helped. I actually felt way calmer mm -hmm. and I didn't struggle with the social anxiety that cripples me every single day. Uh, but of course, we know logically that it would, it would be an error to deduce from that that those individuals have some sort of an alcohol imbalance or some sort of an ethanol deficiency, right? And we certainly know that if they were to repeatedly expose themselves to that kind of an intervention, that biochemically they'd be in a bit of a tough place if they wanted to discontinue said intervention a couple of decades later, right? So there have been many renegade uh, psychiatrists before me, uh, like Peter Bregan and Joanna Moncrief, who have been shouting from the rooftops uh, about the fact that we can not call these medications um, by their mechanism. Right, so the suggestion that this is an antidepressant in any way, uh, that it is resolving a baseline known state of imbalance is a fallacy. We can alternatively make the argument that there is a drug-based effect, okay? So not unlike alcohol, right? Yes. There's a drug-based effect. Now that effect may be very adaptive for you, right? So if you start Paxil and it's sedative and you've been wired for you know six months, that may be exactly what you need. Or you have some of the stimulating effects of, of something like you know Effects or Prozac, that may be a perfect fit for you. Um, what they have in common seemingly is a certain kind of um, blunting, right? Effective blunting, a kind of emotional blunting. And for many, to your original question, who do not have, I would argue this is all of us, but the experience to know how to sit with certain emotional states and to work with certain kinds of uh, symptoms that are emerging, that could be highly preferable. Right, so, so no one is suggesting that there isn't an effect. What many before me and, and you know, what I've kind of collected data to support is that this effect is not resolving a problem. It's creating a new normal. Yes. And if you happen to like that, that would be great if there weren't public health, in my opinion, public health consequences to the freedom to choose this medical intervention. And one of the... Uh, while I am a huge believer in informed consent, and I and I, I would like to empower all people to make the best choice for them, and if you know, you know the literature that suggests that the the effect of antidepressants when you control for the side effects, right, and all of the beliefs that are enacted because of our direct-to-consumer advertising culture, where we've been literally brainwashed to understand our own biology through big corporations who stand to profit from that understanding, right? So, so when we engage a medication we imagine might help us and we start to have side effects, something happens that's called the active placebo effect. This has been exquisitely researched by Irving Kirsch, who is arguably the placebo effect expert. And what he has suggested through very rigorous statistical analysis, including the invocation of unpublished literature conveniently tucked 
in the file drawer, right, that he accessed through the FOIA uh, process, uh, he found that 88% of what we are calling the effectiveness of medication is actually reduplicated by placebo. So what that means is that 12% of people are getting a benefit that they couldn't otherwise get from placebo, and all 88% are getting only risk, right? So this is something to consider because we might say, okay, so what are the risks? What's the big deal? Who cares whether it's placebo or not? If it helps, it helps, right? Uh, it's a pragmatist perspective, but the risks that I have come upon the two, you know, this is not the laundry list of like, you know, interference with libido and menstrual cycles and GI bleeding and hair loss and rashes and all of that. The, the two that I want to shine a spotlight on because I know too many people who wish that they knew about these before they, you know, waltz their first prescription to CVS. One is the um, propensity for these medications to seemingly randomly, although it's just that we don't know how yet to properly risk stratify yet, um, induce states of impulsive violence, right? Yes. So mm -hmm. whether this is a school shooting or whether it's a pilot taking down an airplane or whether it's hanging yourself from the rafters in your garage when you've never felt a moment of suicidality before you started taking that medication. The trouble is that you just don't know if you are gonna be one of those people. And I have many citizen activists who have contacted me over the years, including um, David Carmichael, who uh, had the experience of murdering his own 11-year-old son on a routine dose of Paxil for work-related stress. And he's not alone. This is not random. It's not rare even. So that Russian roulette is a pretty big one, right? Because in the state of intoxication, essentially, you actually can appear completely calm and normal. To those around you and meanwhile you know you're in this um agitated uh, impulsive state of akathisia often what's called is a neurological term for the kind of state that that can be induced we think it has to do with the way certain people metabolize these medications that can lead to this intoxication state yes. but trust me your your primary care doctor is not screening you um for those liver-based polymorphisms right so so that's one and the other is the potential for um, these medications to, I would say it's more than a potential, it's, it's a likelihood uh, for these medications to induce a state of chemical dependency. Mm -hmm. This is not to speak to the psycho-spiritual dependency, uh, you know, that emerges from an experience of understanding yourself as fundamentally sick and broken and understanding your emotional states as wrong, right? That is a whole other topic. This is literally just biochemical, right? And these medications, I've made the statement many times, I still stand by it. For 10 years, I have a, had a practice devoted to taking women off of these medications. And I believe that they are the most habit-forming chemicals on the planet that make cigarettes and Oxycontin and crack cocaine and alcohol look like a walk in the park to detox from, right? So I have never heard of a chemical that requires sometimes a thousandth of a milligram decrement per month in order to medically stably withdraw from. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of people on the internet right now telling their tales. And if that is a risk worth taking, at least you should know about the possibility because the many, many, many patients that I started on medication in my tenure as a conventional uh, prescribing psychiatrist, I never told a single one of them about this because I didn't know. So the odds are that your prescribing doctor has no idea uh, because this is something that has been discovered ad hoc, meaning like after it's out in the community, right? And now just in the past, I would say two years, maybe three, there is an acknowledgement in the published literature that this is a phenomenon, right? It's not what it has been referred to, which is often a discontinuation syndrome, right? This is withdrawal. This yes. is frank chemical withdrawal. And uh, nobody knows how to manage it, right? I have a lot of experience with it. Um, and I'll tell you that it takes a lot of my own, you know, psycho-emotional strength to sit in these spaces with people because it can be extremely harrowing. Um, and I know that there is a light on the other side of it that is more, you know, uh, incredible and brilliant than I could have ever conceived possible when my agenda initially was just to help women not have to fill a prescription anymore. Right. And, and so then I saw 
one after another after another, these process of uh, processes of um, soul awakening, of, of recollecting parts of themselves that were kind of left by the side of the road. And that's really um, what coincided with my own, you know, uh, process of, of awakening and coming to a deeper understanding around the mask that I too was wearing for the greater part of my adult life. And so that's why I think I have a bit of a sense of the anatomy of um, this reclamation process. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> that was a beautiful answer. No, you just knocked that out of the park. And what I what I love about your philosophy, and I'll, I'm, I'm saying this with a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I remember I was sitting down, I went out for dinner with uh, one of my mentors uh, and his wife, uh, who are both, uh, he's a chiropractor uh, by trade. And we were making, you know, of course, we always get onto the allopathic model and how we, you know, the problems with it. And he said something very similar to what you just did. You know, you really have to understand who you're speaking to and what their philosophical paradigm is before you accept their advice. Like if you go to a conventional medical doctor, they might say, well, the problem with your depression is because you don't have enough Prozac in your bloodstream. Like that's the issue. Or if you go to a surgeon, they're going to say, well, the problem that you're having is you have too many organs in your body. You know, that, that, I mean, it's kind of that, I mean, it, it, to the extreme, I mean, it's a little silly, but when you, when you take a more holistic approach and you just get down to bait, like just some of the foundational basics, which I know you talk about in both a mind of your own and own, um, and own your mind, those two books that you have, we're talking about, I mean, you, re you really do embody in some ways, just in, pre in preparation for this interview, I was like, this is my sister from another mister, because your, your philosophy is so similar to mine. We look at, you know, the physical stressors, acute and chronic, chemical stressors, acute and chronic, and you use psycho-spiritual, I use emotional, very similar, um, you know, uh, nomenclature to depict, you know, unresolved emotions, whether it's from your past or right now that you have not been able to sit with. And yes, sorry. No, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes, and this is a, this is sort of a societal comment, but sometimes depression is an appropriate response to yeah. your internal and, and extra, like sometimes it's just your thyroid. I would say it's racked, always you know? an appropriate response. Yeah. I, I've really come through, you know, studying the, I call them the psychiatric pretenders. So studying the, and observing the various physiological imbalances that can masquerade as psychiatric, whether it's blood sugar or um, thyroid uh, autoimmunity or a medication-based um, adverse effect like a birth control or a cholesterol-based medication or acid blocker or an antibiotic, um, you know, or whether it's a, um, a sensitivity to gluten or dairy. Yes. Whether it's a micronutrient deficiency, right? So whether it's those physiologic elements um, or whether it's a patterned response that has been learned and enculturated by your family of origin, whether it's a sensitivity, right, to all that is in fact misaligned, you know, with the way that we are inhabiting this planet right now. So, mm -hmm. you know, in all of those cases, to feel anything ranging from anxious agitation to a deep sense of your soul saying no, right, which is an opting out. It is no, I will not punch the clock like everything is fine. It's not. Right. So how does your body manifest that, you know, through excessive fatigue, poor concentration, you know, inability to rest or sleep, you know, loss of appetite, right? A feeling of hopelessness. And so I often invoke the Krishnamurti quote that says, it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Mm -hmm. Right. So could it be that those of us like you and I, right? who seem to fit pretty well our square pegs into the square hole that society expects us to, um, that we actually have a less sensitivity and a deeper catacomb of the kinds of shadow elements that we don't have intimacy with, meaning that there are whole parts um, of, of Kelly Brogan, right, that I never knew were actually a part of me. Right. And so what I did for the greater part of my adult life is project those parts that I judged and rejected onto other people, including the pharmaceutical industry. Right. And I, and I lived in a state of warfare, war with myself, constantly in conflict with others and in these meta um, activist related conflict with the world. 
right? And I thought, well, I'm going to win eventually, right? Um, but the, the truth is that it wasn't until I was able to develop a modicum of intimacy with those, uh, you know, disavowed parts that I came to find actually everything is, is kind of unfolding the way it's meant to. And now I can respond from wise mind, right? Now I can respond from a place that isn't, you know, my child self driving the car. But there are many, many people who don't fit their square peg well into the square hole. Maybe they have a circular peg, right? It just doesn't fit. So they don't get jobs easily. They, they're not productive members of society, right? This is a major argument for the economic concept of a universal basic income, right? Is it the case that just because we don't value art, right, in the conventional sort of application of it, or just because we don't value teaching or we don't value performance um, that isn't on a Broadway stage or whatever, that we don't value certain soul-based expressions uh, economically and capitalistically, that those people should struggle to survive. Well, that's what we've set up, that we only value this and we don't value that. And so those people are maligned and judged and honestly are invariably labeled as mentally ill. Yes. They get caught in the cogs of the wheel every time. And so that's why I've often said, you know, that it's the most sensitive people. I'm not one of these people. I'm on a spectrum, but I'm certainly not as sensitive as the women I've treated, for example. Um, it is the most sensitive people whose sensitivity expresses itself through symptoms as a means for the soul to get the attention of the mind. And those symptoms are labeled pathological. Those people are medicated and they are stuck in an arrested state of ownership over their vital force energy, right? And that's why in the process of reclaiming themselves from conventional psychiatric treatment, I have watched people blossom. You know, many of them work for me now, right? I've wa watched people blossom into these powerhouses, like radiant as hell and just like ready to give their gift to the world. And often I'm told that the only thing I provided them is permission to trust that actually nothing is wrong with them. That makes sense to me. That resonates. Because, you know, the rest of my protocol is essentially a ritual. It's a ritual that works. And we've published, you know, in the peer-reviewed literature, our outcomes, many of which are, you know, medical history making. I know it works. But why does it work, right? I, I would argue that the greater part of why this, you know, 30-day protocol is effective is simply because it is a, a ritual for self-control and self-ownership and self-possession, right? And now, you know, the grooves of that ritual are wearing, you know, with thousands of people having done it, wearing very deep and the field is strong, holding um, that space for anybody who wants to step into it, right? And so it becomes, I think, even stronger over time until maybe it won't work anymore, right? I think that's what happened also with antidepressants and pharmaceuticals in general, right? That the belief around them became so strong that you could just fill the prescription, pick it up from CVS and already begin to feel better, right? right? But now we're getting to a point where actually the belief is faltering, right? We're starting to feel the bankruptcy of that system. And so the effects are going to be less and less and less. And because they're less and less and less, they become less and less and less, right? Collectively and individually. So I actually think we're in an incredible moment of powerful transition into a really unknown territory. It's almost like an initiation process, right? right? Like when we talk about this 30-day protocol and you can outline it uh, if you'd like, and I, I would love for you to do that so the listeners can learn about it and seek you out online. But I think there's something to be said about doing difficult things and doing it in a community where someone can witness you and someone can see the struggle and to see you persist through that struggle. Can you speak to that? Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. I think the concept of initiation came to me when I began to see the anatomy of the dark night of the soul, right? When I began to see that the disruption of the business as usual, like I'm going to stay with the devil I know kind of thinking right. mm -hmm. um, gave birth to ultimately this sense that I heard over and over and over again, that these individuals finally feel like themselves. And I remember like the 20th time that I heard that, I, that's so weird. Why am I hearing that phrase over and over again? 
like people weren't saying like, oh, I feel so strong and sexy and beautiful and, you know, and my energy is great. That was the phrase. I finally feel like myself. And so what I found is that this process somehow alchemically provides the ingredients for contact with your essential self, right? So these days I know that Kelly Brogan, the, the, you know, the mother, um, you know, the one who hated cats six months ago and now has a kitty on the cats with, you know, the one who used to live in New York, now she lives in Miami, you know, the one who loves to dance and the one who went to this school. And that's a persona I'm relating to every day. And I hope to infuse that persona with the highest degree of integrity and consciousness possible. However, there is a me that I've always been. I've always been it. And, and depending on your belief system, I, I may always be, it may even be an eternal me. And this me doesn't have a past. It doesn't have a future. It, it only has the, the, the eternal moment, right? It only has the now. And this me is always okay. No matter what is undisturbed under every and any circumstances, including trauma, including violence, including hysteria, that, that me is okay. Right. And so how can I make contact with that me beneath all the masks? Right. And, and, you know, this protocol has the, the capacity to drop a big mask. However, there are many, many more, you know, beneath it. Right. I'm still taking them up all the time. We're I like onions. Will. We're like onions. Like onions exactly. Yeah. And I, I yeah. probably will until, you know, the day I die when hopefully I can recapture before then, you know, a moment of, childlike innocence, you know, where I can, I finally just be, be present, um, to my lived reality, but the protocol is very basic. So it's, um, a nutrition protocol that is not by any means as challenging or rigorous as other effective protocols like, you know, gap diet or FODMAP diet, um, autoimmune paleo, et cetera. Um, it's based on a template that I used, um, as a former ethical vegetarian, although I was eating, you know, Cheetos and Pepsi and pizza. Um, I, you know, I went from that to eating a fair amount of animal foods, including red meat in an effort to resolve my Hashimoto's, um, thyroiditis. I was diagnosed with postpartum 11 years ago. And I, um, have adapted this protocol under the uh, mentorship of Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, um, who um, helped me to understand where it fits in a spectrum of different diets, right? So it's just one option. However, it happens to be a really good starting template uh, for anyone who's struggling with depression or fatigue, um, multiple chemical sensitivities, allergies, uh, thyroid autoimmunity, and it is, um, it's an ancestral diet. So it's basically eating uh, animal foods of all varieties, vegetables and fruits of all varieties, nuts and seeds, but it's eliminating um, grains, it's el eliminating legumes and dairy, um, and also, of course, processed sugar. And then when I practiced in New York, the hardest part was no no alcohol and no coffee. <laughs> so yes. just yeah. filtered water. Yeah. That's when I lost a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but So it's that, and then it's um, engaging the stress response. Um, with a daily contemplative practice. I'm trained as a Kundalini uh, yogi, and I also happen to feel like three minutes, which is all that I ask for, um, of Kundalini meditation relative to mindfulness meditation or something else, uh, really gives you an experience, right? So because there's a lot of breathing and mudras and sometimes mantras, there is, it's a very active uh, kind of meditating. And for somebody who otherwise has difficulty meditating, it's a great place to start. Um, I did that for many years before I'm um, just this last week, I went on a, my first silent retreat, right? And that kind of meditating, you know, where there's no instruction, you just sit and be still and quiet to me is extremely advanced. I needed a good 10 years under my belt of other forms of meditating to even be able to sit with that possibility. So it's that. And then there's also um, detox, right? So in my uh, approach, I have learned about the power of the coffee enema yes. to, from Nick uh, Gonzalez to stimulate liver-based uh, detox, which is very important for anyone taking medications, but arguably for all of us, I do them regularly. Um, conscious consumerism, of course, you know, you know about all of this, you know, what kinds of products can we uh, purchase? you know, this one versus that one, uh, to 
lessen the, um, the body burden of toxic and exposure. And then, you know, filtering our water, filtering our air, uh, buying the right mattress, that kind of stuff. So it's really just meant to be a month of an uncomfortable amount of attention paid to yourself, hopefully through a reverent lens, right? So how would you treat the baby that you've been wanting, you know, for 10 years and you finally conceived and you finally birthed and that baby's here? How would you treat that baby, right? You would make sure that every aspect of her experience was carefully considered. And that's something of what we're going for. And it's very neurologically disruptive to that default network, right? To that autopilot that we get into, which is meant to serve us, right? So that we don't have to think about so many things and we can navigate other challenges that might present themselves, right? But, but if we can disrupt that, then the whole central nervous system is in a state of plasticity, I believe, is in a state of receptivity to, to laying down new tracks. And that's the only way I can explain what comes of this protocol because I, as you heard, it's not that complicated. Um, however, the community, in my opinion, is extremely unique because I, I just don't, I, I don't know um, another you know, psychiatrist out there who, who has the particular extreme beliefs that I do um, around the capacity to heal and there never being uh, a, a situation where medication is necessary. That doesn't mean you can't choose it or you won't choose it. But I, I, that's the conclusion I've come to, is that we actually can grow our own capacity to, to create the container around that wild swirl within us of energy. And we can learn to hold it through the cultivation of a certain kind of adult, we call it an adult consciousness. But it's that you that I mentioned, right? It is that, that watching eye that knows that everything is fine, right? And if you're getting caught up in the energies of your body and mind, then it really serves you to remain connected to that stable ground of, of being, right? And so that's a learned skill for sure, but it doesn't take that long for it to come online. And in my estimation, it can take as little as, as a month. Now, this is something I'm still working on all, all day, every day. So it's a practice. Uh, but I do have faith that everyone has this inbuilt capacity to reclaim themselves. What's nice about that 30-day protocol is that at the end of it, as you're saying, you have so much more information. You understand how you respond to casein or wheat or red meat or all these things. And that can drive future decisions, but you can never actually change your behavior if you don't actually go through it. And I think, and I, I, I hold this philosophy uh, that you are never really given anything that you can't handle. I agree with that. You can, if you, and, and I say this with a loving, firm hand for any, and we know that just statistically the listeners who are listening to this episode today, we know that they are either on an antidepressant themselves or there's someone in their immediate circle that they know is on an antidepressant and you are never given anything that you cannot handle yourself. And you'd mentioned something I wanted to touch on, which is the inner child. I think you called it your child self. And we are so scared of that ugly, unworthy, you know, unlovable, lazy, you know, Exactly. troll, you know, yeah, that, we, exactly. that we think essentially lives inside us, that we just, you know, and the antidepressant is another proxy to just push that down and ignore that. But that is how, you know, through your protocol and some of the other things that you're talking about, that is how you birth your, that is how you come into your whole self, the full acceptance of who you are. What is your inner, you know, you can either talk about this personally or in a clinical setting in terms of case studies that you've seen what has, do you do a lot of inner child work in terms of like, I name my, mine's baby Steffi, you know, like baby uh, Steffi, you know, scared of being left, you know, abandoned and she feels ugly and unworthy. Those are her sort of things that she swirls in. Yeah. But if you, but if you don't allow yourself to marinate in that, then you will always, the fear around those things becoming true are the, the things that drive your behavior, behavior rather than that, like me and baby Steffi are going to walk through this together. That's right. 
And, and, you know, what I love about the zeitgeist that we're in is that, you know, 10 years ago, I'm not sure many people would have had any idea what you just said. You know, right. Right? <laughs> and, know. and now, you know, the, the kind of myself included, I would right, have like, exactly. not talked to myself. Yeah. Exactly. But, yeah. but this, there's, there is an awareness of, of something called a reparenting movement, right? So yes. what does that mean? That means that we have the opportunity, even though our culture did not set up the conditions as indigenous cultures do for, for adolescents to initiate into adulthood by encountering the limits of the fear that the ego expresses, like I can't do this, right? They encounter that and they blow through it and then they become the bigger adult consciousness that has that ground of equanimity, right? We don't have the conditions set up. So we're just like kids running around in adult clothing, all of us, you know, all from, from, you know, political figures on down to your neighbor, all of us. And I, I think we are amazingly at a point in time where we are discovering, oh, okay, initiation requires my moving into the dark cave, right? Yeah. I go, I've got to go, only I can do it. I can know other people are doing it. I can be a part of communities that are doing it. But in the end, it's an inside job I have to do. And there is this elusive quality I have been you know, observing for many years that I, I can't really understand, which is readiness, right? So you reference the people listening who are, maybe they've considered antidepressants, maybe they're on them, you know, maybe they know somebody who is, maybe they know they would never touch that. But then a moment comes where they're like, oh, should I do it? I don't know, right? So, so the readiness is the best I've come to in terms of kind of capturing it is that it's a moment where moving towards change, radical change actually feels like a relief, right? Because the moment before staying with the old familiar, even though you complain about it 24 hours a day and you're deep in your victim story, staying in that is, is still prefer preferable, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the initiation process involves moving into that cavernous place where we have stuffed our child self, right? And so what's, you know, the child self, I think of as being the experiencer of emotions, right? Arguably, again, depending on your belief system, I believe we incarnated to feel emotions, literally. That's why we're here. That's why. To feel emotions, right? And to re-experience love from the seeming duality of non-love emotions, right? Whether it's anger or shame or rage or fear, you know, we could understand each of these strong negative emotions is actually being a flavor of love, right? Being a voice that says, I don't deserve love or love's not here or I don't love that. Or, you know, those are the voices of those negative emotions, but they're all relative to love, right? So if we think of what's actually the opposite of love, it's, it's probably disconnection, right? Mm -hmm. And that's probably why states of disconnection are the most existentially anguish producing, right? But these other states are still very alive, right? And, and, and when we can potentially grow the container strong enough to just know that they have an arc, right? They come, they flare, and then they go, their energy, right? The only way to really do that is for there to be that adult consciousness in the room, right? So that adult woman who's saying, baby Steffi, it's okay to feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. It's just okay. We don't have to fix it. In fact, we're not going to fix it. We're just going to sit here and feel it. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to die. I promise you. I promise you, you're not going to die. Right. So, uh, those, I go through those, that kind of a micro exercise, you know, that I put my version of it in, in the book. It's just a visualization very related to what you described. Um, I don't know, probably five times a day, right? Anytime I feel any disturbance. And that can be from a communication, it can be from a feeling like I don't have time you know, to do something I need to do. It can be because I'm, you know, cooking and my daughter's like, mama, 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 whatever, you know, mm -hmm. where I, for me, I, she's like in my right hip for some weird reason. So I, I sort of like imagine my posture turning down towards that part of my body mm -hmm. and I just hold her. Like, I feel like I hold, I hold her and I say, it's okay. Right. Because if we don't do that, 
that's where the shadow comes in. If we resist those emotions, we don't allow them to expression. The shadow is where they get um, stored, right? And distorted. And that's when we end up projecting all of these rejected um, traits onto others. And we, I believe, generate the conditions for us to experience these emotions again and again and again, right? So have you ever known, had a girlfriend who attracts the same kind of guy and is left, you know, at the altar or whatever over and over and over again, right? It's, it's just her bad luck. Or is there some element of her subconscious, her shadow, that is attracting these experiences so that she can finally give herself the authority and permission to simply feel them mm -hmm. and for that to be okay, right? Because she didn't get that permission at any other point in her life. And now the poetry is only she can give it to herself, right? So there's no partner who can do this work for you. Right. And, and, and I, and I'll take a, the opportunity to, to say that it's actually romantic partnership that probably gives you the most opportunity to work with this. Um, oh, yes. I don't think I would have any idea, you know, what this work was if it wasn't for my, uh, romantic partnership, you know, where all of this stuff comes up and all I ever feel when we're in conflict is like, wah, wah, it's not fair. Like I'm right. You know, it's a, the child self has a child voice. And the trouble is that then as a grown woman, I'm translating for her. I'm letting her drive the car instead of taking the wheel, turning back to her in the car seat and saying, it's okay. I know where I'm going. I know you're upset. We'll be there soon. You know, like yeah, that yeah. kind of a thing. And, and it's the hardest work. It's, it's the hardest work. I almost left my husband in the recent past because I couldn't imagine feeling the feelings that he is perfectly designed to induce in me. I, that's why I know I love him, right? Yeah. I just didn't want to feel the feelings. Mm -hmm. Literally, the story becomes irrelevant because the truth is that I just didn't want to feel the feelings. And once I got to a point where I could relax into seeing that if I don't feel these, learn to feel these feelings with him, I'm going to have to do it with the next guy, right? right. And, and that I'd rather do it with him. So how about I woman up, right? And I really break this cycle that has probably been handed down to me from, you know, I don't know, eight generations of women. So, yeah. I thank you so much for your honesty with that. I, I agree that your romantic partnership, the other area is parenting. Parenting. Your children will just hold and mirror back to you all the things that you truly need to heal within yourself. And um, we had Dr. Shafali uh, yes. Sabari on the, who I know uh, you know, uh, on the podcast, and she said something almost identical to what you just expressed in that we are all just eight-year-olds in adult bodies. And when she talks about having parenting issues or, you know, you know when a parent comes and says, my child is just not doing the things I want them to. She's like, okay, we're not going to see the kid yet. We're actually going to talk to you first. Um, and it, just a, a little clinical pearl. Um, one of my patterns that I've noticed with women where they would come to see me clinically, it's either neck or hip, always yeah. the neck and hip. So when we think about that energetically blocked right. in the throat chakra, blocked in the sacral or the root chakra yes. and the physical pain was often again, an invitation to uncover more. The way that it was trying to escape the body um, was through those two distinct areas yeah. uh, and it's often emotional stuff there as well. Oh, 100%. I've had both of those. Yes. <laughs> well, I just, I just wanted to tell you I'm such a fan of your work and, and just thank you for your contribution. It is no small feat to fly in the face of the consensus and to have the courage to follow your own path and to bring that into your teachings. And when I look at you, you know, I said, you're my sister from another, you know, when I watch you, in many ways, you give me permission to mm -hmm. follow my own path and to be more of who I already am, but to, to peel off more of those onion layers uh, in my own journey and, and in, in my you know, quest to help other people. So, well, likewise, you, you know, because I'm not everyone's uh, cup of tea, that's for sure. And so for me to dialogue with such a like mind is really a pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you very much. And I, we will put in the show notes where uh, people can find you, but uh, the Vital Mind Project and the Vital Mind Reset are the two programs that people, if they would like to engage with you, is that? Yeah. That? So, so we have Vital Mind Reset, which is the protocol. Um, so that's kind of like the deep dive, like when you're ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we have a, a membership community that's just kind of where we hang out. Um, we do kind of like life hacks every month um, for a week. And that's called Vital Life Project. And so that's my, my newest project. It's, uh, I guess, about a year old or so now. It's amazing. pretty amazing. It's actually impacted my life um, more than I ever expected. Just that spiral process of revisiting the readiness over and over again. Like, am I ready to drink more water? Nope, not yet. Am I ready to, <laughs> you know, limit my cell phone use? Maybe, you know, I'm, yeah. you know so we kind of yeah. address these one thing at a time. Thank you, Dr. Kelly Brogan. It has been such a pleasure for me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.